It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 339 for April 21st, 2013. This week, new life for your older computer. Windows 8 is why PC sales are dropping, right? And in short circuits, Microsoft opens its campaign against Amazon. Oracle says 42 Java security issues have been resolved. And who turned off the Google? It used to be if you wanted to speed up your older computer, the standard suggestion was add some more RAM. Well, these days, most people have about as much RAM as their computer can handle, at least if it's a 32-bit system, and if it's a 64-bit system, they probably do too. So the new advice is buy a solid-state drive. The first thing you notice about a solid-state drive is its packaging. Disk drives that depend on spinning platters and tiny read-write heads that fly microns above the surface are amazingly rugged now, but they're still shipped inside a padded box that's usually inside another box with a lot of additional packing materials. Not so SSDs. They're just tossed into a padded UPS or FedEx bag and shipped. The interior box does have a bit of protection, but nowhere near what you'd expect with a standard drive. That's because there are no moving parts, and that's what makes it so fast. Because a solid-state drive is really just a lot of memory, it's more expensive than a standard drive, nothing moves, so effectively whatever sector the disk drive needs to find is right under the read-write head all the time, even though there is no read-write head. It's imaginary. There's no need to position the read-write heads. The controller software just refers to the location in memory where the needed data is located. In other words, it's magic. And that's what makes it so rugged. A couple of things could kill an SSD. I think a large hammer would probably be fairly effective, but it would take a few whacks to do it. And some misplaced static electricity, yeah, that would cause some problems. Otherwise, with no moving parts, there's nothing to wear out, no heads will ever come in contact with a spinning drive that's running at 7,500 RPM, or maybe even faster. So I decided I wanted to speed up my older Toshiba Satellite M645. This is a notebook computer that I bought several years ago. The Satellite series is a good, middle-of-the-road group of computers. They're not the fastest computers that Toshiba makes, nor are they the smallest and the lightest. They're small enough to carry large enough to have a good keyboard, powerful enough to run power-hungry applications such as Photoshop, at least in a pinch, and they're good for presentations. The boot time under Windows 8 is faster than under Windows 7, but I've become spoiled by the 15-second boot time offered by a Windows 8 tablet, and the short startup time that my desktop computer has by virtue of its solid-state boot drive. The hundreds of thousands of files still live on standard disk drives because I'm really not interested in trying to duplicate the national debt by purchasing SSDs for everything. So I ordered a drive from Crucial on a Tuesday and paid a few dollars extra for three-day shipping, assuming it would be in my possession on Friday. What Crucial's website doesn't say as part of the checkout process is that they reserve an extra day to prepare the order for shipping. So three-day shipping made the delivery day 
Monday. If only they'd mentioned that on the checkout page, I would have decided to pay literally another couple of dollars to have it on Friday. Then I could have had the whole weekend to make the switch. But it arrived on time on Monday, complete with a data transfer kit that includes a USB to SATA cable and some disk cloning software called EasyGig 4. After reading the directions, I plugged the drive into the USB port, watched the USB drivers load, started the software, and nothing happened. The application didn't see the drive. Neither did the Windows 8 Disk Manager. But relax. A call to Crucial Support resulted in a suggestion that I plug the drive into my other computer, good thing I had one, to see if the drive was recognized there. It was. Then I formatted the solid-state drive, 500 gigabytes, in about three seconds, and moved it back to the notebook computer. This time, the notebook computer recognized the drive, and so did EasyGig 4. The application asked me to identify a source drive, a Hitachi drive inside the computer, and the destination drive, that would be the crucial SSD outside the computer, and then reminded me to be sure the selection was right. It was, and before the copy process started, it had me confirm the settings one more time. Now, having been on the wrong end of a disk format at least once, I appreciated the extra care that the developers took to make sure that a very bad thing would not happen to the disk drive in the computer. So, a bit more than two hours later, the cloning process was complete, and it was time to swap in the new drive and swap out the old drive. At this point, the instructions were very clear. Turn off the computer and do not reboot it with the new drive still attached. Doing this could cause some serious confusion. Before booting the computer, it's important to remove the old hard drive and install the new hard drive in its place. Toshiba makes this relatively easy. Remove one screw, open the cover, slide the old drive to the right, disconnect it, lift it out, drop in the new drive, push it to the left to connect it, put the cover back on, and boot the system. And then what? Well, it worked. You were expecting me to have trouble here? To have some tale of woe? Well, so was I, actually, but everything worked just the way it was supposed to. The new drive booted and all of the applications that needed to be authorized, such as Windows, the Office Suite, and Adobe applications, were still authorized. Now, solid-state drives are still pricey. You'll pay about 80 cents to a dollar per gigabyte. That compares to about 5 cents per gigabyte for standard drives. For example, a 120-gigabyte solid-state drive sells for about $100. And if you can find a standard drive that small, you shouldn't pay more than about 30 bucks for it. Good luck finding one, though. A 256-gigabyte SSD will cost around $200 compared to 60 bucks for a standard drive of a similar size. At 512 gigabytes, the SSD is going to run you about $400. The standard drive, $85. Your wallet takes a real beating if you need a large SSD drive. A 1-terabyte drive might cost... $3,000, although you can find them for less, compared to about $100 for a standard drive. And standard drives are also available in even larger capacities. A 2-terabyte drive sells for $125 to $150. 4-terabytes, commonly available for about $170 to $250. And good luck finding any SSDs that large. And if you do find any, good luck paying for them. That's why desktop owners who want the advantages that a solid-state drive will provide but aren't independently wealthy select a smaller SSD on which they install the operating system and all their applications. This gives the computer owner the fast boot advantage and allows programs to start quickly, but it retains the lower price of standard drives for storing data. 
Unfortunately, that's not an option for notebook computer owners. If you want a solid-state drive in a notebook, it's an all-or-nothing proposition most of the time. A few specialty notebooks do have two drive bays, so it would be possible in that case to install one SSD and one standard drive. Or, if you use the notebook in a stationary location most of the time, to install the SSD for fast booting, and then to use an external standard drive for data. SSDs are a little different. If you install a solid-state drive, you'll want to turn off disk defragmentation. Or, maybe you won't. Actually, it depends on which operating system you're using. Anything before Windows 7 will try to defragment the SSD, and that's not a good thing. Instead of helping to make the drive faster, it can cause problems. If you have Windows 7, the defrag process will be turned off by default. In Windows 8, defrag is turned on again, and you might be inclined to turn it off because of all the warnings. But don't. The media type will be shown as solid-state drive, and defragmentation will be enabled. That's because the process has changed in Windows 8. It's now called a general optimization tool that's capable of handling various kinds of storage. For SSDs, it sends what are called trim hints for the entire volume. That's because SSDs can be written at the byte level, but they need to be erased at the block level. In plain English, that means that SSDs need to read hints from the file system so that they can reclaim partial blocks that are marked as occupied. When the storage optimizer detects an SSD, it sends trim hints for the entire volume when the drive is idle. So, for the most part, your operating system will get the settings right but it's still probably a pretty good idea to check things out. Oh, that villain Windows 8. It's just causing PC sales to drop like an anvil, right? No. Wrong. What those who make this absurd claim miss is the fact that hardware is changing. Large numbers of users are migrating to portable devices instead of notebooks, and to notebooks instead of desktops. And how many people are just simply waiting to see what devices are going to be available in the next six months or so before committing? There is no question that PC sales are off and off dramatically. But saying that Windows 8 caused this decline is a long jump as conclusions go. The evidence just isn't there. There's no shortage of Windows 8 haters, but those are the same group of people who hated Windows 7 and loved Vista before that. And of course, they hated Vista and loved XP when Vista came out. By sure luck, they got that one right. Before Vista? Well... Then they hated XP when it replaced Windows 2000. You see the pattern here. Whatever's new is what they hated. Windows 8 hasn't sold the way Microsoft had hoped it would. As with most new hardware, new devices are expensive. That said, I'm glad I bought an Acer tablet because it fills a need I didn't know I had until I realized what a tablet would allow me to do. I mentioned that people are waiting, and that's part of the reason why. Everybody knows that the first iteration of anything will cost way too much. Apple has taught its users that many times by releasing something new. And then six months later, releasing a nearly identical device with double the performance of the original at two-thirds the price. Windows 8 may have made the problem worse, but it didn't cause the drop in sales. That particular handwriting has been on the wall for a long time. 
Had Microsoft hit a home run with Windows 8, the drop might not have been so severe, but there still would have been a drop. We're in what's being called the post-PC era, a time when many people find that smartphones and other handheld devices give them all the computing power they need. Apple invented the tablet, and now that everybody's on board with the idea, it's clear that tablets are where the sales are going to be for a while. Standard PCs continually become faster and more powerful. Disk space is cheap to buy, so computers come with more space. How many people do you know with 2 terabytes, that would be 2,000 gigabytes, of storage space, and about 100 megabytes of data? In other words, these are people with disks that are nearly 90% empty. And how many people need an 8-core CPU with 32 gigs of RAM to surf the internet and check their email? A tablet is more than sufficient for those tasks. Desktop PCs won't be going away, at least not anytime soon, because there are still people who want to process high-end video, work on large photo files, and perform complex scientific calculations. But most PCs, even the entry-level machines, have way more power and storage than most people are going to need. For pundits to pretend to be surprised that PC sales drove over a cliff and then to name Windows 8 as the driving force for the crash, well, that's more than a little disingenuous. The market for desktop computers, or at least notebooks, is likely to continue in the corporate world for a long time. Anybody who spends all day in front of a computer entering data or even just writing and replying to email messages isn't going to be very productive with a tablet. I see more and more business people who use desktop systems when they're at their desks with tablets in hand when they head for the conference room. That's because tablets make outstanding reference devices and they allow those who carry them to keep in touch with communications when they're in meetings. So yes, PC sales are down, but this really shouldn't surprise anyone in the industry. And the decline was not precipitated by Windows 8. And here's a side note on Windows 8. Windows 8.1, also known as Windows Blue, reportedly will include an option to bypass the Metro interface and go directly to the desktop. I mean, after all, pressing the Windows key and D is apparently proving to be just too difficult for some people. I'm a little conflicted about this. There's the I told you so response directed at Microsoft from what I wrote a year ago. But there's also the how lazy or how stupid are you response directed at those who can't figure out how to use Windows 8. At this rate, Windows 8.2, which will probably be named green, will bring back the useless start button so that people who are complaining about the absence of the start button can once again complain about the idiocy of using the smart button to shut down the computer. In short circuits, Microsoft has opened its campaign against Amazon. So Microsoft is going to sell books, eh? Well, no. Well, and they're going to create a competitor for the Kindle Reader? No, but hasn't it already done that with Surface tablets? All right, so Microsoft's going to set up an online store? Well, not exactly. So you might be forgiven for wondering what Microsoft would do that would be a threat to Amazon. Besides the online retail presence, the books and the reader, Amazon is a gigantic player in another area that many people really don't know about. They provide support for websites owned by other people. Amazon Web Services offers hosting for prices ranging from free to a lot, and 
by the way, free here is good only for new customers and only for 12 months. After that, you'll pay, and probably a lot. Amazon Web Services is where Microsoft wants to challenge Amazon. AWS and other players in that segment of the market don't provide hosting for sites such as TechBiter Worldwide. These services are for operations such as NASA and NASDAQ, The Guardian and Lionsgate, Newsweek, The Daily Beast, and Outback Steakhouse, or Instagram and Foursquare. In other words, they're for operations that need to provide highly reliable services to a lot of people. Microsoft would like to be a part of that action. In other words, they're going after a part of Amazon's operations that most people probably aren't even aware of. So how did this come to be? Well, Amazon knew that it needed a powerful computing platform to provide its own services, and management, particularly Jeff Bezos, decided that if they had to build it, they might as well build it big enough to serve other companies and see if they could convert what would otherwise be an expense center into a profit center. So far, that has turned out well. After testing its new service for a year, Microsoft this week started selling the service, and it'll match Amazon's prices. But there is other competition, although not exactly on a par with Amazon. A company called Rackspace offers pricey and reliable hosting. And Google, of course, is in the cloud-based marketplace, too. The cloud is a threat to Microsoft's traditional PC-based business, and the company has moved quickly to make its office suite relevant in a post-PC era. This is a stark difference from the company's stance in the 1990s, when it seemed to believe that the Internet was nothing more than a passing fad. But the cloud is also an opportunity if Microsoft can take advantage of it, as it's attempting to do with operating systems and applications that play well on portable devices. says that it has solved 42 Java security issues. 42. That is, as you probably already know, the answer to life, the universe, and everything. At least you know that if you've read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. To avoid having writers like me introduce a story about their company in this kind of silly way, Oracle should have added another bug or two to fix, even if they had to invent a couple of them. This week, Oracle released patches to fix 42 vulnerabilities in Java, and the vast majority were critical errors that represented significant security problems. Oracle has a generally poor record of responding to security threats, and several flaws have been used by cyber criminals. One threat earlier this year exposed computers that run Windows and computers that run Apple's OS X. Computers were infected inside some large organizations, including, for example, Apple and Facebook. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security even issued a warning that suggested users disable Java until the problems could be fixed. Some known bugs remain, but none of them are classified as critical. By default, Java will now refuse to run any applications that have not been digitally signed. Users can override this setting, and keep in mind that even criminals can obtain digital signatures for their malware but this is at least a step in the right direction. (laughs) 
Here's a question for you. Why is it news when a company has a problem that affects 0.007% of its users? Well, it's news when that company is Google. That happened this week when about half of Google's primary applications experienced some loss of service. And yes, that is seven thousandths of one percent. Things like this happen to everybody from time to time. TechBiter Worldwide has been unavailable for short periods several times in the last few weeks because of distributed denial-of-service attacks against Bluehost. Those outages are in no way connected with Google's problem on Wednesday. So no online service is immune. Apple's iCloud is unavailable, sometimes. There have been times when Microsoft's TechNet have been unavailable. Even Amazon, subject of an earlier report, sometimes suffers outages in its Amazon Web Service. And this week, American Airlines had to ground all of its flights for part of a day because its Sabre online service wasn't available. So Google experienced a small outage on Wednesday. Here's how to handle those kinds of disruptions. Just sit quietly in front of your computer. Breathe deeply. Relax. And if the problem persists, read a book or lie down with a cat. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.